0: You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. Morning. Scripture reading this morning will be from Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15. If you'd like to follow along in our Pew Bibles, you can turn to page 1180. 1180. And it reads like this, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. God is good all the time. Gary was going to save this announcement, but I'm just so excited I'm going to take it from him. Friday was a great day, and it ended the week real positively as Harley Davis put on Christ in baptism. So I was real real tickled to, to know about that and be able to be here, and David did it because uh, I think Harley thought if I did it, it wouldn't take. I don't know. But anyway, I, I do know this. I know we're very happy for Harley and I know that if Mr. Nicky Ryan were here, he would be very happy for her as well. Do me a favor and let's bow together and say a prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you, Father, though undeserving each of us are, you love us to such an extent that it casts out that burden of being unworthy. We thank you for that gift and we thank you for Harley, for her mom and dad and her family that have brought her to this point. We pray, Lord, that she will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that she will be strengthened in the inner person to do your will at all times. Bless her in her walk with you. Father, we remember before you also Arvis Thorne. We pray, Father, for peace to be with him, to be with Martha and their family. Bless them. He's been unwell for a long time. And, Father, we look for him to receive healing in this eternal life that you have promised us in Jesus, our Savior. So bless him, Lord. Bless Martha and bless their entire family. Be also with Kristen Scott. Be with those also whom Gary mentioned. We pray that as you know each of their needs individually, that you and your providence and in your mercy will provide. We thank you. We love you, Father, and we thank you for loving us as you do. And We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. I watched this, I think it was 60 Minutes or one of those types of shows. Uh, It it was from, I don't know, the late 90s. And this psychiatrist was interviewing this guy by the name of uh, Richard Kuklinski. That's almost a, a tongue tangler there. But he was an inmate and he was serving a life sentence. And as they were talking, I became really intrigued in this guy, mainly because of some of the names he was associated with some of those names were names of the Italian Mafia. So essentially, as you go through this interview with uh, Richard Kuklinski, it was very interesting. He, when he was a boy, he grew up in a home with a, an alcoholic father who was very violent. And his father would often beat him and his siblings. Don't know what the reason was other than that, from what I gather, the man was just mean. And so he would beat him and his siblings And you would like to think in a home where you have an abusive parent, there would be a comforting, nurturing other parent. But his mother wasn't much better than his father. She actually broke a broom handle beating him one time. Because of that abuse that he endured as a young child, as a young boy, it gave him an inability to feel remorse. So as he was working as a young man, as a father, as a husband, his children knew him only as a loving father, and his wife knew him only as a loving husband, though they would admit he could have a very, very, uh, I guess you say very, very bad temper whenever he lost it. But what they didn't know was that he was actually a hitman for the mafia. He would receive contracts, and he would go out, and he would take care of the individuals. He is actually one of the ones they say was involved in the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. So the psychiatrist was talking to him and talking about his childhood, and he says, you have the, the, the patent traits of a psychopath. And he said, these are, you're, you're, you socially isolate, you don't feel remorse, and he listed other things. And I'm sitting there looking at this guy, and I'm going, how, how could he, how do you turn into that type of person? But what it is, is when he was abused as a child, he became desensitized to right and wrong, to pain and uh, the like. And, and you look at his story, uh, his, the authorities dubbed him the Iceman because of how cold he was when he did his killings. He passed away years ago, but I, I think about him and I think, you know, we haven't gotten to that degree, but you think about the process of desensitization. And every one of us on some level or another are desensitized to sin. It used to be, think about back in the 90s when you heard about the Columbine shooting, how horrible that was, and what you might have felt at that time. Now think about when a school shooting is mentioned. Some of us probably go, oh, that's bad. But we become desensitized to it, almost as if it's a part of the fabric of society. Maybe it's those things. Maybe it's language. Maybe, maybe it's, it's media. Whatever the case is, we've all come to a point of desensitization. But have we gotten to the part to where we are no longer ashamed of sin? When you look at this passage, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. Notice this next sentence. Nor did they know how to blush. Think about the state that a person gets to when they can no longer blush or they are no longer... And now we live in a time where it's everybody tell your sin, let's normalize it, and let's celebrate it in some way. That's the time we're living in. Are they ashamed? No. They're not ashamed. They don't even know how to blush. And so you look at the outcome for what happens... In this particular book, God judges Israel, judges Judah. But there's an ugly truth that we have to come to grips with when it comes to sin. And that is, sin begins with our desire. James chapter 1, beginning verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed then when desire has conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death scripture is very clear about what is sin and here's the thing i don't get to define it you don't get to define it god does and if god calls it a sin it's a sin it doesn't matter what anybody else says if god calls it sin it is sin the consequences of sin is death. The reason Jesus died on the cross was for sin. And yet today, so many want to water it down to the point to where they're not ashamed of the abominations, to where they no longer know how to blush. Here's what, here's what, here's what I see. I've noticed the pattern. Let me point it out and see if you notice it as well. I had to write it down because... Thinking about it's one thing and organizing your thoughts, I had to put pen to paper. When behavior is sinful, you will have a group of people who masquerade behind a banner of compassion. And they will treat sin as owing to some genetic matter or some other mitigating circumstance or factor. Then the person that is sinning they now point out as a victim because of how others regard their behavior. And we have to acknowledge and support victims because they are unjustly oppressed for something that they can't conceivably control. They're a victim of themselves and a condition, so whatever you do, don't shame them. Because we have to have compassion. And when we have compassion on this, then it normalizes the sin and then it makes it okay. And so what we'll do, we'll rebrand it. We'll call it something other than what it is and spin it positively so that the person feels good about themselves. Sound familiar? Here's an example. In late 2021, a Virginia University assistant professor argued that it was immoral, excuse me, that it was not immoral for adults to be attracted to kids. The transgender professor asserted that they should be referred to as minor attracted persons. You and I would say that's a pedophile. But this professor says, no, 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 it's not immoral. Let's call them minor attracted persons. And this professor wrote a book called A long dark shadow, minor attracted people, and their pursuit of dignity. Look it up. I am not making it up. That's what happens. The professor had to resign because of this, but argued that the research was intended to prevent child abuse and better understand sex offenders. I don't really care to understand, it's wrong full stop. And you can put, and I can put a list of other sins in there that people have normalized, that they've tried to sanitize. And folks, I'm not saying that I'm better than anybody else. None of us are. Jesus died for my sins, just like he died for theirs, just like he died for yours. But the difference is I'm not going to water down or justify my sins when God clearly says it's a sin. And we shouldn't be the type of people that sit back and just be like, well, that's okay. We need to be people of conviction. We need to be people that have backbone because there are a lot of salamanders swiveling about without backbone. I don't know if a salamander has a backbone or not, but that's just the first thing that came to my mind. So some biology nerd out there is going to go, well, now, did you know that's all you got out of that sermon? That's usually how that goes. Scripture would refer to such things... As a debased mind. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. You know, the one thing I would never want God to do is to give me over to a debased mind because I reject the Creator and rather serve the creation. And Paul wrapped the bow on this really nicely. Of these people, he says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Few people are willing to speak up or speak out for what's right because We've become afraid of being labeled as a hater, a bigot, or some type of phobic. So we stay quiet, don't want to draw attention, especially unwanted attention. But because we don't speak about these things, here's something that I wonder. Do our children know what the will of God is in regard to this, that, or the other? Years ago, um, Brie was in high school, and we were talking about someone that she had met and uh, this person, and there was something uh, about them that was different, and you know, and so she she wasn't quite sure how to navigate it. And I said, Well, look, here's the rule we always follow every human being is created in the image and likeness of God, and for that reason and that reason alone, every human being has dignity and worth. And so we, our job, as followers of Jesus, be nice to everybody. Don't bully anybody. And if you see somebody being bullied, you step in and stop the bullying. But while being nice to people, it doesn't mean that we have to subscribe. And if they want to talk about it, we can talk about it and we can disagree and we can be cordial about it. But we're not going to be mean and we're not going to be hateful. Now I find it necessary to say that because when you talk about sin and there are some sins that each of us we may not personally struggle with but we struggle with that type of sin and the type of people that do those sins. And so when we hear sermons about sin we're going, yeah, amen! And then we think we have the right to be jerks to those people. That's not the point at all. As followers of Jesus every person bears His image And we need to be nice to everybody. But being nice to everybody doesn't mean that we have to be steamrolled by ideologies. There's a huge difference. So always be nice. Remember that first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. The second, love your neighbor as yourself. Now there was some crafty lawyer that said, Well, who is my neighbor when Jesus spoke about this. And, you know, he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. He said, you know, this man was walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves and they beat him and they robbed him and left him for near dead and almost naked. And it happened that a Levite was coming by. You think, Levite in that story, you go, okay, this is a religious person. Surely this is a person who will stop and help. But the Levite passes on the complete opposite side of the road. And as you're listening to the story, you're going, well, now maybe the Levite's on his way to the temple and he has to maintain his purity. Okay, I, I, I could probably see why he would just pass the guy by. But then you're, you're missing the point because, yes, the temple service was very important and you had to be clean and, 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 and holy and just in order to perform those functions. You have a human that's in need. But the Levite just keeps on going. Well, as Jesus tells the story, a priest is coming by. You think, well, okay, the priest is going to help. Just like the Levite, the priest moves on by. Now, the part of the story that really, really, really would have irked the audience, those folks to whom Jesus spoke, would have been the part when he says, and now it just so happens that a Samaritan was walking by, saw the man in need, bandaged him up, took him to the inn, paid for his care and said, take care of him. When I come back through anything that's owed, I'll be sure to pay. And Jesus asked, which of them was a neighbor to him? And the guy couldn't even bring himself to say it. He said, the one who showed him kindness. Because you see, the Jews and the Samaritans weren't on the best of terms. Samaritans were descendants of the northern ten tribes of Israel, but they were not full-blooded Israelites. They were half-breeds. They were mutts. Heinz 57, we might say. And sometimes their behavior was so atrocious towards the Jews that uh, there was just great animosity. So it was inconceivable that a Samaritan could do a good thing in the mind of a Jew. But that's exactly who did. So when you love your neighbor as yourself, God doesn't give qualifications. Love your neighbor if they're a Christian. Love your neighbor if they fear God, love your no, love your neighbor as yourself. And we hear this saying all the time, and many of us say it: love the sinner, hate the sin. But before we go around hating other people's sins, let's learn first to hate our own. Let's start there. I was filling out papers at a doctor's office recently, and. Um, you go through, and there's a part, and by the wording of the question, I'm like, I know what's coming. What was your gender at birth? Male. A few questions a little bit later, and then there was a whole section. What is your gender now? And I, I just went on, skipped, went to the rest of the stuff. Well, Stephanie was sitting there. I think Stephanie thought that I, that I m- might have missed it. She goes, oh, she pointed out. And I said, I'm not playing that game. I'm not playing that game of the gender. I'm not playing that game with the pronouns. I'm just not doing it. And all these places with these forms, what, if, you, if that's important to you, you do it. But up until a few years ago, everyone knew what proper pronouns were. Everyone knew what gender and sex was. So there are people for whom that's a very important issue. Not me. I don't care. If that's you, you go do it. That's your problem. That's your business. But I have not bought a ticket to that circus, and so I'm not going. Not going to do it. And if you don't know my pronouns, bless your heart. I'll just leave it there. Someone wrote this First, sin is a failure to do what we must do. God, as creator, has given us responsibilities for which he holds us accountable. We must carry out these responsibilities to avoid debt. That is the debt of sin. Next, sin is an expression of hostility, a violation of the personal relationship human beings are supposed to have with their creator. When we sin against God, we break that relationship. We express not love and devotion to him, but rather a severe hostility that must be addressed. Have you ever thought of sin in those terms? That it's an act of violence against God, that it's an act of hostility or enmity against God. And you say, well, that's a nice illustration, but does it say so in Scripture? Well, as a matter of fact, it actually does. Romans chapter 5, beginning verse 6, when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Now, I want you to notice how Uh, We are described before the death of Jesus and after the death of Jesus. Okay, right there, ungodly. That's what we are. For scarcely for a righteous man will someone die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, so we're ungodly, we're sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So before we are Christians, before the death of Christ, we're ungodly, we're sinners, we're enemies of God. So I want to ask, do you find yourself, are you a Christian? If you're not a Christian, there's where you are. You're ungodly, you're a sinner, you're an enemy of God. And you go, well, I'm not actively hostile against God. Well, sin does that. Sin is the hostility against God. But let's read it again and see what we become afterwards. When we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Verse 8 is probably my favorite. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'll tell you why Romans 5.8 is my favorite verse. I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but if someone were to ask me off the cuff, what's your favorite verse, it'd be Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the point. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to try hard enough. In the sinful mess that we all are, that we some of us many of us once were that's when god demonstrates his love toward us despite what we are and despite the effort that we give that's the love that god has for us all much more than having now been justified that's one of those biblical terms um you know one person said being justified means justified, never sin. I am thought, well, that's pretty crafty. That's a nice way to remember it. But to be justified by His blood means acquitted of all charges. That's the legal term, how the Romans would have used it. So imagine you're brought up on charges of your sins, whatever those might be. And you stand before the judge, rightly condemned, knowing whatever I get's what I deserve. But the judge in His grace, not because you deserve it, not because you've done anything to warrant it, the judge says, I acquit you of all charges. How do you think you're going to regard that judge? And through Jesus Christ, this is what God does. When we come to faith and obey the gospel, we become acquitted of all the charges. They no longer stand against us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by His life. So before we're ungodly, we're sinners, we're enemies. Afterwards, we're justified, we're saved, we're reconciled. So if you're not a Christian, you're on that front end. You're before the cross, ungodly, sinner, enemy of God. When you obey the gospel, you confess your faith in Jesus, you're buried with Him in baptism, you become justified, you become saved, you become reconciled. So which side are are you? Are you before the cross or after the cross? Because if you're before, you can always get to the after part. All you have to do is obey the gospel. And that begins with acknowledging, I am a sinner. I am a sinner And there's nothing I can do to wipe my sins away. But I can acknowledge that the Creator of the heavens and the earth has a great love of all humanity to the point that He sent His Son to die for all of us. And He offers us that pardon. If that isn't love, what is? We don't deserve it. We haven't done anything to earn it. We never can earn it. It's a gift. And I don't know about y'all, but I like getting gifts, even though... My family tells me I'm the hardest person to buy for because usually if I want something, I just go get it. But the gift that God offers to you and to me is salvation through His Son, Jesus. So if you are before the cross, I invite you to come through the cross to come out as justified, as saved, as reconciled to our God and Father. If you wish to obey the gospel this morning, come forward as we stand and sing.